Back in 1974, Annie Dillard wrote a a few words that ever since I read them, they've been stuck in my head. She wrote, all that summer conceals, winter reveals. When the winter season arrives, things that you didn't think were there before suddenly appear. Outside my office, I can look out in the summer and all I see are trees. But in the winter, I realize that at uh, Avenue C and 9th, there's a water tank. I can see it clearly in the wintertime. Once the leaves have fallen, you begin to see things that you didn't otherwise see. And apart, of, apart from the application to nature, I think that we can realize that as individuals and as families and as churches, we enter into different winter seasons. A winter season includes times with additional responsibilities, additional demands, extra decisions, more persecution, unrealistic expectations. I mean, all of these things increases our anxiety and it may reveal something, something that might have been there all along, but it simply takes a winter season to reveal it. Think about what happens to a family when a parent loses a job. That's a winter season. When a member of your family is hurt or sick or disabled, it begins to reveal certain things. And churches too, can appear to be working really well together. But what happens when a winter season arrives, when there are times of additional pressure and tension? In our language today, we would say your true colors come out. Often they were there the whole time, but it was simply winter that revealed what was always there. During times of increasing uncertainty, with increasing demands, with more external turmoil, these often usher in for us a winter season. And churches can do one of two things. We, we recognize that, I, I think that we as a culture right now are in the middle of a winter season, aren't we? I mean, you can look at different industries. You can look at hospitals, airlines, and restaurants, and all of them are increasing, mentioning increasing violence, a, a lot angrier customers. That, that this is a winter season that we find ourselves in as a culture. And when you come into a winter season, there really are two directions you can move. One, you can either move closer towards each other, or you can move further away from each other. And that's what you're going to find out, what you're really made of it as a community in the middle of these winter seasons. In the language of Paul, as he writes to the church in uh, Philippi, the winter season can reveal one of two things. Either it can reveal a church family that is striving side by side with one mind for the faith in the gospel, or it can reveal a people who have a propensity towards murmuring and argue arguing, and people who cannot be of the same mind. And the pressing question, and I don't want you to answer this out loud, but the pressing question is, what do you think we've done as a church? In the winter season, have we drawn together, or has it forced us further apart? See, when Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, they were in the middle of their own time of discord, their time of arguments, and, and, and there was this external pressure that brought in this winter season. Paul mentions in 127 those, 128 those who are opponents, and later in 310 he will talk about those who are enemies of the cross. And the exact nature of that external pressure, we're not exactly sure, but we do know that it's there. That, that the winter season has arrived, and Paul wants to know what's going to happen with this church. And unfortunately, there have been, as a result of the, the frustration, there have been divisions. Some people have been acting from selfish ambition and from conceit. They have been murmuring and arguing. Paul will mention two women specifically who he begs that they would be of the same mind in the Lord. 
See, instead of living in discord, what Paul wishes and wants for them is that they would be living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And if you were a member of that church and Paul said that to you, you'd probably raise your hand and you say, Paul, that's a great idea. It's great advice. But how can we live in a way that is worthy of the gospel? And we have so many different thoughts and ideas and opinions and perspectives. And I think what Paul would say is he would say, I'm glad you're asked that what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel means that you, plural, the church, would stand firm in one spirit. That you, plural, the church, would be striving side by side with one mind for the gospel. That you would be of the same mind. That you would be of the same love. That you would be in full accord of one another. That's what it means to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And can you imagine somebody hearing Paul say that and say, okay, how are we really supposed to do that? Paul begins by giving them two things to stop doing and two things to continue or pursue doing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do not look at situations from your own interests, but instead, yes, what we need to do is in humility regard others as better than ourselves and look to the interests of others. How should we act when we come into a winter season? as a community, and as a group of people. And I think we could summarize Paul's answer with one word. And that word, of course, is humility. Humility is regarding others as better than yourselves. Humility is looking at the interests of others. And this really shouldn't be surprising to us at all as we're familiar with the New Testament because often when you find times of disagreement, times of, of, of um, arguments between people, you will often find following closely on the heels at that intersection there will be the mention of the necessity of humility. In Mark 10, when the disciples are arguing amongst themselves, Jesus introduces the concept of humility when he says, whoever wants to be the first must be the last of all and the servant of all. In Romans 12, when Paul is addressing a congregation that has a lot of division between Jews and Gentiles, Paul will say, tell us not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, but to think of yourself with sober judgment. He's calling towards humility. Or 1 Corinthians, where you find a congregation that is totally all over the map in so many different ways, Paul prescribes humility as an expression of love when he says, it does not insist on its own way. When division rears its head, we should expect to be reminded of the necessity of humility. Humility and arguments are like the winter and the snow. When the winter comes, you know the snow is going to follow soon. And we recognize in scripture when there's divisions and arguments, there is a reminder of the importance of humility. Where there are divisions and arguments in the church, the logical conclusion must be that somehow humility is missing, absent, or neglected. Not only does Paul introduce us to the importance of humility, he introduces us to a very specific form of humility. It is the humility of Jesus. Whatever cultural definitions you might be able to come up with about what humility is, Paul is most concerned about saying, look like Jesus when it comes to humility. And so that's why he writes this text in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in case the church in Philippi has any doubt about what humility looks like, 
when it's embodied or when it's lived out, Paul points the finger towards Jesus. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to be clear that that what Paul is not talking about is specifically an individual mindset or attitude. It it begins there. Humility starts with the individual, but it grows into the shared experience. So humility is something that is present among y'all. It should be there with each and every one of us. As Gordon Fee says, to have this mindset in you, it must also be evident among you. Humble thinking, when it is fully grown, will be seen by the interactions, by the conversations, and by the service that happens within a group of believers. But what does that look like? What does the humility of Christ really, really look like? And what would it look like if we were to pattern ourselves after the humility of Christ? There's a guy named Michael Gorman who uh, has, has helped me think through this as he introduced something that he's called the pattern of humility. And I think if we pay attention to this pattern, we're going to come to find it repeated in lots of places where Paul writes to the churches. And here's the pattern that comes out of Philippians chapter 2, uh, 5 through 11. The first is, is this mention of although or because of a certain status, which Gorman represents with the letter X, but not Y, which is the expected conduct, but instead... Oh, and I will let you know at the beginning, I never remember whether this letter is Z or Z in America. So I'm going to be bilingual here and hope you can translate. But Z or Z, unexpected selflessness. Although because of X, not Y, but Z. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you right now, that's okay. We're going to explain exactly what this means. Beginning with Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God. And here we introduce this idea of although or because of X, his status for Jesus, it was that he was in the form of God. And then we have this expected conduct. Why? So Paul tells us Jesus has this exalted status. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that we, like the first century Christians, we associate status with certain rights. And people who have a status have a right to do certain things. For example, if you're a homeowner and that is your status, you can paint your house any color you wish, even if your neighbors think it's ugly. You can do that because you have the status of a homeowner. If you have the status of being an employee of Costco, you get to go in that really cool break room that I only get to look at when I walk past and use the restroom because it looks really cool in there. We recognize that people who have status can use that status and nobody judges them and nobody thinks negatively of them. And so what would be the rights associated with one who is in the form of God? In that early Greco-Roman mind, the gods had the status where they could do, they could dominate whatever they wanted to dominate. They could rule whatever they wanted to rule. They could coerce. They could punish. They could do anything they wanted to do because they had the status of deity. And as we read about Jesus being in the very form of God, we need to realize that everybody would have expected him to act or behave in a certain way. But Z or Z, he responds with unexpected selflessness. Paul offers a surprising twist when he says, Christ did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or something to be used for his own benefit. What what do we expect from one who has a high status, one who is is in the very status of God? Uh, I would think we'd summarize it with the word taking. Remember in the Old Testament, when they wanted a king, what was the word that says it's going to happen over and over again? They're going to take, they're going to take, they're going to take. And we expect there to be taking. And guess what? Jesus does take, but in a very surprising way. Chapter 2, verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking what? Taking the form of a slave. 
talk about a fall from glory. He begins in the very form of God. He steps down to being in the very form of a slave. And yet the downward journey isn't done yet. Because he then humbles himself, becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I think we've read this so many times that it's, it's easy to be not surprised by how subversive this ending is. So I want to illustrate maybe what it would look like um, for you to be surprised by an ending. And so I'm thinking of this story about a, a little, oh, here's another one. Girl guide, girl scout. Tell me which is the right one. Are they girl guides or girl scouts, Jerry? Scouts, all right. In Canada, they're girl guides. In America, they're girl scouts. Okay. So this little girl scout is selling her girl scout cookies. And she's standing at the end of the driveway and she has, she's blonde and she has little pigtails and she's so cute. And she has that brown little vest and she goes and she walks up to the door. And you know what she does, right? When she's got a cookie, she goes, Gah! she kicks the door down. Any of you guys expect that? No. That's what it would have been like reading about Jesus taking the very nature of a slave. Like, where did that come from? That is not at all what I expected to happen. What Jesus does is he subverts what we expect in a shocking way. He does not use his status for his own benefit, but he uses it for the sake of others. In fact, there's been this ongoing debate about the best way to translate this phrase, who being in the very nature God. Some suggest that it should be concessive, although or causative because. In other words, is what Jesus does as God, is it, is, is it non-characteristic to God? Is Jesus saying, well, you, know, you know, God usually does it this way, but Jesus decided to do it that way? Or is it saying because he is God, he did it very much in line with the way that God would do it? And you can read different in English translations, and you will see that they translate it differently. But really, it depends on the perspective from which you're looking at it. If you're looking at it from what we'll call a worldly point of view, you would expect that when one is God, they're going to use that status for their own benefit. And so it would be, it would be very much in line with what you would expect. But from a biblical point of view, as we've been familiar with this God in the Old Testament, with this God who does what is in the best interest of his people, it seems very clear that Jesus is acting in a way that is in fact very consistent with who God is. Paul starts off with God, with Jesus being the very form of God. He has these short, direct statements, and that same person ends up dying on a cross. And one of the functions of what Paul tells us is to create a sense of thanksgiving, praise, and worship. As we gather around the table, that's often what we do as we remember the, the cross, just as we did this morning. It brings us to a place of thanksgiving, confession, praise. But Paul is not telling this story of the cross for that specific purpose. He is telling us the story of the cross so that we would live in the exact same way. That's what Paul wants to breed, is a new lifestyle within us. See, when he's introducing us to Jesus, he's introducing us to this fixed pattern that he wants us to imitate in our lives. That although we might have status, we would not do what is expected by our culture in that position, but instead we would respond with unexpected selflessness. And I want us to take this, and, and we could go to tons of different texts, but I'm going to take one as Paul applies it to himself, and another text as he applies it to the church. So let's begin in 1 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 8. Nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own 
selves because you have become very dear to us. See what the status is? Paul is saying, I am an apostle of Christ. And as an apostle of Christ, there is a a behavior that we could expect that he would go in and he would make demands. And if Paul went in and he made demands, everyone would say, that's, that's fine. That's appropriate. You are a what? You are an apostle and you can go into places and simply make demands. But Paul says, even though I have the status of apostle, I will not act in the expected way. But what does he do instead? Instead, he is gentle among them. And he shares not just the gospel, but he shares his very own self. And do you see how Paul, by the way he conducts his ministry, he's patterning it after the very cross experience of Jesus. Paul doesn't just want it to be something for people in ministry. He wants it to be something for people in congregations. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where there, of course, we're dealing with a disagreement. There are arguments about food sacrificed to idols. And when we come across a disagreement, we're going to expect there to be some instructions about humility. And so in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, um, Paul writes, Hence, as to, the, as to the eating of food that is sacrificed to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. So the status here is there are some people who have the knowledge, the awareness. These gods that, that, that they're concerned about, they're not real. They're not a problem. They're not an issue. And so when somebody doesn't believe in the gods and, then, and, and has a right to eat the food, then what is the expected behavior that we expect? We expect, well, they go ahead and eat the food. That's perfectly legitimate. It's perfectly appropriate because they know these gods don't exist. But Paul will say in this context of disagreement, even though you have the status of knowing, even though what might be expected as a normal behavior is to go ahead and eat, what does Paul tell them? In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And you see, he's taking the pattern of Jesus' ministry and he's applying it in times of conflict in congregations. So what would that look like for us today? I think it's important we could ask ourselves this question, what is my status and what are the normal rights associated with it? I think we need to realize there's going to be a lot of pressure from our culture to say, if you have a right to do something, then what? You should do it. Because why? You have the right. And Paul wants us to realize and ask ourselves, what are the normal expectations for this position? But then there's this question. Once that established, in light of what God has done, what could I do to act in a surprisingly selfish way, selfless way to the benefit of others? I want to tell you a very simple way that I've seen the humility of Christ pattern exemplified in this congregation. We moved here when our kids were really, really young. And we noticed that after church, our kids would be playing with the, uh, the teens at the time. And, and on one occasion, we said, you know, you, you guys don't have to do that. I mean, everybody knows teenagers don't have nearly as many privileges as they'd like to have. But they do have the privilege of looking at a little kid and say, you know what? You're annoying. And I don't want to talk to you, and I don't want to be around you, and I'm a teenager, and I'm telling you what to do. But these teenagers befriended, hung out with, played, treated our kids kindly. So even though they had a certain status that they could just blow other kids off, they didn't. They played with them. They honored them. And guess what? Now that those teens are, those kids are now teens, guess what they're doing with the younger kids? 
They're, they're doing the very same thing. From an outside perspective, it might look like that's a, 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 an, an exceptional case. But within the culture of this church, among ourselves, our teens exemplify humility in the ways that they show love and care for those who are younger to them. And I think that all of us could learn to find ways that we can function more following this humble pattern. We do need to remember that right now as a congregation, we are in the midst of a winter season. And winter seasons, what they do best is they reveal what's truly happening. My prayer is that in this season of turmoil and tension, that it won't just result in murmuring and arguing. But my prayer is that instead it will reveal a true expression of Christ-like humility among us. And that's only possible if we begin to act in surprisingly humble and selfless ways. When we do that, we can confidently say that we are living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then it will be evident to all that we are standing firm in one spirit and striving side by side with one mind for the faith and the gospel. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And we end always with a reminder of this blessing, that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're going to sing another song in just a minute, and I'll be in the back if you would like to talk about your faith journey. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, just encourage you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together.